You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name is Trent Fleskins, your host as always. This week is a special episode. We have one of our markets, Stalwarts, an absolute legend of the industry. He's been the president of Rewa been present nationally as well. He's a name that everyone in Western Australian real estate, whether you're a buyer, a seller, a selling agent, or someone on the peripheries of the market would recognize. It's someone I have a lot of respect for. It's David Airy. David, thank you so much for coming in. It's a pleasure, Trent. Good to be here. Mate, I wanted to get you in, not only just to have a chat, because yep. it's lovely to get some perspectives from some of the legends of the industry, <laughs> but further... You mean, a, you mean an old bloke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but further... This is a time which we recognise quickly broached off air that has a bit of noise. There's a bit. Mm. Of, there's more noise mm. in the market right now than there usually is. Yes. When there's noise, there's a bit of confusion. And the best way to quell confusion and get cut through to the answer is to use anecdotal evidence to understand. Well, this has is not the first time these things have happened before. Whether no. it's interest rates or war or inflation, all these things going on. Get an understanding of. Your perspectives generally about how the market is at the moment as a real estate agent still operating in the industry, but also give us the last few decades of how you've seen anecdotal correlations, something that you can create nexus with. So thank you again for coming in. I thought the best way to start this conversation is just to have a bit of fun firstly and ask mm. you, tell us about your first ever sale. Uh, <laughs> well, funnily enough, it's uh, 49 years ago this month or last month, June, that I started working in real estate at Pete & Company Applecross. 767 Canning Highway up across and I uh, didn't live in that area but that was the job I was allocated I wanted to get into real estate and Pete gave me an office a job in their Applecross office and uh, they threw the multi-listing book at me which had about 4,000 listings in it that's how you worked in those days and I was put on desk duty we used to have to front desk duty and some people came in who were buyers English migrants as I recall and the property I showed them was at Apsley Road Willerton like about 114 Apsley Road Willerton I, I still see listings today on obviously on that yeah street. well that house was uh, the house sold I think I sold it for about uh, Thirteen and a half thousand. That was my first sale. Now, bearing in mind the median price in Perth in those days was about sixteen or seventeen thousand, and you could buy a property in Armidale for five and a house in Netherlands for thirty. So, putting that into context, yeah. I mean, you think about Willerton these days. <coughs> it wasn't a bad sale. Well, Willerton's clearly done well over the decades because mm, it, it used to be sitting at, as you said, seventy yeah. percent of the median. Now it's probably double. Uh, well, Willerton came out of the back of Riverton and Burrundah and all those estates over there, and it's uh, been a pretty stable suburb. Willerton High School, I think, and places over in the area over there is very well settled now. But it it just reminds me, uh, this is roughly 50 years ago. So uh, the five decades of modern real estate that I've worked in have been um, in many ways very different, but in many ways the same. Uh, it just depends how you look at it. We talked today about interest rates. We're always talking about interest rates. Even back then? The borrowing the rate then in 1973 was around 7% or 8% for a housing loan. You couldn't get credit. We had the Whitlam Labor government. Inflation was 15 to 20%. We're talking today at 7%. Can you imagine inflation running at 15 mm. with a forecast of 20%? You could get no credit and a housing loan. Nobody could borrow money other than people with existing borrowings and savings at, uh, say, building societies and banks, or if you're pretty well connected. And uh, that meant that the property market was very, very slow indeed. Most borrowing in those days was well under 80%. Most people didn't borrow the whole, like they do today, 95, small deposits. There was no key start. 
So you had to have a good deposit. So sales were pretty slow, to be frank. The market was all over the place. People were worried. Australians had never seen inflation like that and a credit squeeze like that. The government changed in 1975 and the credit gradually improved. The Fraser government, it was, ironed things out. Johnny Howard was treasurer. Yeah. <laughs> Markets settled down and things with a lot more normality in the 80s market, if we're just moving quickly through the decades because we haven't got 50 years for this. <laughs> Every trend. I, uh, in the meantime, had moved to uh, back to where I lived in, uh, in the western suburbs and my old schoolmate Jeff Potter and I opened our business which was Airy Potter and Associates then in uh, 1978 and we had an office in Netherlands to be honest we killed the pig we did very well in real estate a couple of fresh bright young blokes about 30. What was it that what was the point of difference you had was it your age? Age youthful all the old agents were old and we weren't they were set in their ways they wanted to structure things the way they did it whereas we did home opens can you believe talk us through some of those practicalities that we take for granted today we put lots of signs out for home opens we put um, color photo boards out as well we didn't have color photo boards but we did color brochures and we put out lots of little notepads you know that you stum a dozen now but we used to hand deliver and notepads to the front door. Now, you can't do it today because everyone's got a gate and a lock and a dog. Yeah. No, one we, wants to, no one wants to answer the door. No, either. we used to knock on the door and say, hello, my name's David Airy, and we just opened our business down the road. We'd like to give you a notepad. If you're thinking of selling, would you call us? Well, we did a <laughs> pretty simplistic approach. So simple, I can't believe how well it worked. But um, Was it a friendlier market? Oh, much friendlier then, yeah. And Netherlands and Dalkeith was a market with a lot of older people. Still is. Uh, it was, still is. But, I mean, older people who are we, – we identified it as a market which was good for transition for people retiring who were wanting to move maybe to something smaller. But when I say older, they, we're talking about people well into the 70s or 80s because people didn't move then. They always stayed in their own home in big quarter-acre blocks. Today, the transition into apartments seems to start a lot earlier. But anyway, that market worked very well. And again, the median price in the Netherlands then was about 40 or 50 grand, and Dalkeith was about six to 70,000. Couldn't even pave your driveway for that. <laughs> no. Well, Jeff and I got a bit ambitious. We did buy an investment property in Dalkeith, which we, I think we managed to get out of it with the skin of our teeth and not lose money because credit got tough or interest rates got very high in the 80s, as a lot of your listeners may remember, uh, worse so in the early 90s when they were 14, 15, 16% for a housing loan. I have to laugh, you know, Trent, when I see people whinging about, oh, my interest rate's gone up to 2.5% or Three and a half. Jeez, I can tell you, I was hanging on grimly. I'd made and lost a fortune by 1990 because we had foolishly went into a few developments where the rates were punitive, like 20%. Yep. Uh, it wasn't inflation that was killing us, but it was high interest rates and servicing debt. And, you know, you learn a lot of lessons. Stick to what you're good at. I'm quite good at real estate, as in listing and selling. I'm absolutely no good at developments. Well, I go. can't do what you do. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm very good at selling stuff, but I'm not going to develop it. I'd rather leave that to all the experts because I've seen money go and see how easy it can go, no matter how good it looks when uh, the market turns against you and nobody wants to buy. Well, you've foreshadowed something already in that whether it's buying, selling or developing as an extension of that a lot of it's timing and mm. you've spoken about the few decades there I'm sure that in every decade over the last 50 years there were years in those decades where if you just bought and developed at that time yeah. at that interest mm. rate th- there was clear opportunity and mitigated risk and then at other times doesn't matter how good your development was mm. you're always on a losing path 
Well, the 90s would be the worst decade I can think of in my career. The early 90s, late 89 through to late 80s through the middle 90s was a lot of things that Paul Keating had done had been a very good treasure. I think introducing, uh, people will say not, capital gains tax was needed for society to have more equalisation of wealth, uh, sharing of wealth, which I'm a believer in, because governments have got to run. You can't enjoy the lifestyle we've got in Australia without the government having some tax revenue. And it's a pretty friendly capital gains tax when, when everything's been done. And by the way, I've paid a lot of capital gains tax, so before you ring up and say <laughs> I'm a communist. <laughs> Secondly, um, the government, though, was tired, and uh, Keating was uh, re-elected in uh, 90 and again in 93 on the, the GST move by the Houston Liberal uh, opposition. And the bite of taxation of um, high inflation, high interest rates was starting to kill businesses around Australia and real estate was no exception. We were really going through a tough period. Our staff were reduced to nothing or I remember our sales staff were driving taxis at night and you know people were really struggling in real estate generally. What, what were you charging as a commission rate? Um, well uh, I've got to go back to what median prices were. 90s probably uh, 100 to 100 maybe 150, 150 grand. Oh, we had regulator commissions then, Trent. Uh, those were the days of regulator commission. I can only remember one figure. It always stuck in my mind that the commission on a million dollars sale was 23500 roughly, 2.35%. So pretty similar to today. Yeah, well, pretty similar in that I get that. I charge because I have said this is my fee. I don't yeah. really <laughs> fiddle. I think most people <laughs> in the industry at most price points would be somewhere in the higher ones to... Yeah. Mid to yeah. the commission. Look, obviously, a, everyone haggles around it, but you know, and I hate to, oh, just a tiny digression on the fees. A good agent should cover his fee with negotiation. Mm. When people hire real estate agents, they should look for negotiation skills. Not the best looking bloke or woman on the block, not the one with the smart car, the best negotiating skills, because that tidies up, makes the deal better. Getting back to the 90s, they were pretty tough, but by. Um, the end of the 90s, things had started to improve, and we hit 2000 and the new century with a much better market. And of course, as you know, we had a real real estate boom in the first few years of uh, 2000, right up until um, the GFC in 2008. And then uh, Australia didn't feel that. We actually had the we had the dead cat bounce, as they call it. In 2010, we had we were still thinking, "Where's this GFC?" But then we had that late GFC, which really hit prices. And property, and this is where you know I think up to about the GFC, just before maybe uh, there was one big change in real estate in, in the real estate industry in the way you sell, and that's where the internet really started to come in. Yeah. You started to list things online. Uh, yes. It makes transactions far less frictional, and, and yep. I guess transactions can happen a lot happen a lot quicker. Can you talk me through the days of, to be frank, before I was born or when I was a young kid? how life was as a real estate agent, that ability to actually market properties without the internet. We've really only used the internet since the late 90s and more so in, in this in this century. Realestate.com was created back in the early 90s. Incidentally, the Real Estate Institute of WA was one of its first investors. Yeah. Realware had its own website, though, long before everybody else, called Realnet, which just basically was a website where you put information on and people looked at it. It wasn't as interactive as com is, for example. It was a today. listing website. Yes, there was stuff there, but it wasn't really um, of great value to anybody and very little downloading and stuff going on. Just going back before that, mobile phones were, became popular in the late 80s, but they were like carrying around a brick or a car battery. 
And then obviously they got smaller and better. And uh, when I first started in real estate, we used to have a little thing called a little pager about the size of a small mobile phone. You'd bolt it to your hip and people would ring a paging service and you'd get this little message say, David, ring office. And, uh, and everyone had a pager. Some companies had two-way radios, but... You often had to drive around looking for a phone box. <laughs> you had to ring somebody urgently. Get to, get to you can deal. imagine. You can just imagine trying to set up appointments as we did with buyers in those days. We used to take buyers out. Yeah, I'll see you at four forty-five. Yeah, see for and you. Oh, you, you, I'm running late. You can't tell anybody. It's just the way it was. And uh, but everybody was slower and, and more patient in those days. Mm. Today we live with the mobile phone bolted into our ear, and also we don't drive buyers around in cars anymore. They have to find their own way to. Home opens. <laughs> but uh, the technology change has made a huge difference. Has it made a difference for the better? Mm, I think so because people can look at stuff. But I think a lot of people, uh, agents, have become lazy. I think you've got to take the buyer by the hand and show them the property. Everybody wants to touch, feel, kick. I can't believe you'd buy a motor car without going and driving it or at least opening the doors. But no, Volkswagen and Mercedes Benz want us to buy our next car on the internet. I'm happy to look at houses on the internet, but I want to walk through it. I want to see what it feels like. Yeah, and and I think for real estate agents, the game changes throughout the cycle when uh, it's times like this and houses nearly sell themselves because of all the assistance of walkthroughs and videos and all that. The game for real estate is really just how many listings can they get because the houses will sell themselves nearly. And Trent, if there's young real estate agents listening, my message is if you want to make yourself redundant, just keep using the internet to the extent that you don't have any interaction with the client. We've now got DocuSign. We don't even see people to sign off as no. anymore. <laughs> I had an elderly lady this week who said, David, I'm really sorry. I can't use it. Can I come into the office? And I said, sure. The dear old girl came in and signed the offer. I think she just wanted to get out of her house. And I thought to myself, you know, really, I should have taken that to her. Mm. I was being so lazy. But it made me think in terms of coming in to talk to you, that's a very important that we, we could really make ourselves redundant. Realestate.com, Rua, not so much Rua.com, Domain, all the big websites around the world, Zillow, uh, throughout uh, America, there's lots of them, would be quite happy if all real estate agents did was put listings on their website. And they can easily eliminate that by having the buyer go directly to them. And don't think it won't happen. It will happen if we are not very careful to protect our patch. Our patch is protected by our integrity being great, personable people. Relationships. Relationship management is vitally important to the future. It won't worry me. I'll be dust in 10 or 15 years' time. But if I've left one legacy, it will be build your relationships. I get a kick out of walking down the street in my patch and having people say, Hi, David. G'day, David. Hi, David. Or to my kids, oh, your dad sold us that property 20 years ago. I get a kick out of that. Mm. And I say to young people today, if you want to get a kick out of life, keep meeting people. You die without relationships. You were the president of Rewa. Yes, enjoyed that immensely. How your time there was and what the market was like at the time and and what it takes to be a president of Rewa. Well, 2003, I joined the council because I saw there was a vacancy and I also saw there was a couple of people on the council that I didn't think had to be frank, very high integrity. I didn't think they had the right credentials, but more importantly, I felt I could, at that stage, I was 53, I could offer something to Rewa because I was in a fairly comfortable position business-wise. 
our business had really, uh, because we'd stripped it back, we were ready to race. We'd gone from being fat and lazy to marathon runners, yeah. <laughs> and we'd sent through this terrible period. So uh, my business was going well. It had gone from being a million-dollar office to a two- or three-million-dollar office in terms of our revenue, and I could afford to put some time into Rewa. Virtually the day, the month I joined the council, there was a massive move at Rewa to push the then-CEO, Mike Griffiths, out to sack the CEO, which was done. Uh, there was a lot of blood on the floor, I've got to tell you, a lot of acrimony. There were 15 councillors, and uh, the uh, CEO left after 20 years or something in the role, and we spent some time finding a new CEO. Subsequently, that was Ann Arnold, who was appointed in 2005. There was another bit of uh, drama going on. A lot of us felt the council was too large and unwieldy at 15 people, and we went through some management restructuring and agreed to reduce the council down to nine, including the president, and that happened in 2007 or eight. I can't remember. We all had to resign, stand for election. Bit of a clean-out. Those of you with a long memory will remember there was a difficulty with the president, and that's uh, history now, not naming names. But uh, I was re-elected, and then I became deputy president, in fact, to uh, Rob Druitt. Rob was president to Alan Burke. I got elected national president due to the resignation of the federal president in 2009 at a board meeting. He just stepped down, and I was his deputy, mm. and I was Rewa's nominee on the national board. The plan had been that I would have followed Rob locally, but Alan Burke took that place for a couple of years. I stepped down from the national board in 2011 and I picked up the Rewa presidency in 2011 and sat there for four years. I enjoyed it immensely because Rewa's a great organisation, fabulously run by Neville Posse, full of uh, enthusiasm. Neville's got boundless energy. We uh, really did some great steps with uh, Rewa.com, accepting the fact that it was never going to be a real estate.com, but we've made it just the best institute in Australia. No other institute can boast, Trent, that they own their $12 million building, have 10 or $15 million in the bank, and investments in real estate, infrastructure, and other products that are really pushing benefiting the industry members. forward. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that prop tech side of things, I think, really you, important, all the data that comes out of it. And, and this is not telling his tales out of school, but the South Australian Institute have had to sell their premises. They're down to about half a dozen staff. The uh, Victorian Institute have lost a lot of money investing in what was called Real Estate View, which they've finally got out of. New South Wales seem to be relatively stable. Queensland's been to the edge and looked over. Western Australia's a very stable institute body, and it's at the forefront of all the things we do today. New people coming into real estate take REI forms for granted. Mm. That's a West Australian invention originally. They used to be online. You know, you download them, print them, and then write on them. Now they, you do everything yeah, on them. It's very convenient. And it is very convenient. All the annexures and things we get, I mean, that used to be, they used to have committees called, I've served on all of them, the Forms and Documents Committee. Now, that really is a boring committee. That sounds dry. That is really dry. And the worst one of all, you want to know the worst one of all? It was the Joint Committee of the Real Estate Institute and the Law Society of West Australia General Conditions Revisionary Board. The acronym. <laughs> it was just awful. You need a form to fit the The only thing to look forward to at the meeting was sandwiches. <laughs> For example, the new joint form is just out this week, or this month, 2022. Yep. That's been four years in the making. Because that's how long it takes the committee to do things. Make a decision. Well, they always say if you want to slow the progress down, yeah. form a committee. Governments are good at that. Parliaments are great at that. Boy, Send it to committee. Hey, let's segue into the, the interface there. The inter interesting thing about being real president, I find, is that your membership 
is obviously a bunch mm. of real estate agents. A lot of them obviously only focused on making sure that their job is uh, as fruitful as possible. Yep. But the reality of the REWA president is it really represents the whole state. It represents owners. It represents hundreds of thousands of homeowners. Mm. So whilst it's, uh, the REWA president on a fiduciary basis is paid for by the membership of real estate mm. agents who are at odds with who are a buyer and a seller at any one point in time, they actually, I think, as a mouthpiece, are there representing every homeowner in Perth yeah. having a chat with the, pre- the Premier and saying, look, we wouldn't mind an increase in the stamp duty threshold, for example. Well, well, you've got also, Rebus, the only body that has as its, as its spokesperson a practicing real estate agent. If you're going to talk about the market or talk on behalf of real estate agents, you need to be a real estate agent. I was one who pushed through rules with others years ago at Rewa because the rules were vague on whether a council member, a Rewa councillor, had to in fact be a licensed real estate agent. Um, it just said uh, vaguely, yes or no, but it wasn't precise. It's now a requirement that anyone joining the Rewa Council must have a certain years of experience and have a hold of real estate agent's licence because I think that's the credibility you'd expect. If you're talking to the Premier, for argument's sake, the Premier would expect to be talking to a real estate agent, not to, you know, an accountant or a... Or an administrator. Uh, well, yeah. well, that's what the CEO's for, um, right? The CEO at Rewa talks about... Uh, statutory matters and things like that. The difficulty with being president I found was the number of media you have to do. On average every month I would do 130 media spots Mm. in one way or other be they radio, TV or just phone calls or articles and stuff. You have a lot of help in the background but you've still got to read the stuff because you know the famous statement about the speechwriter that didn't like his boss and resigned and he made sure the speech ran and he said, and for my, in conclusion, he turned over to a blank page saying, I quit. So <laughs> always read the speeches that are given to you <laughs> uh, because you never know what's there. But you've got to be across the market and know. It's so quite an influential were, position, I think. And like a number of commentary points around the country, uh, the Rewa president has obviously that pipeline to be able to put out some pretty uh, important and influential messages yeah. to the population about where the market's going and sometimes it's that important because if, for example times like this you've got people from the east coast lazily misrepresenting perth as being part of a national well uh, that's always decline. been the case Trent. yeah I mean. and and that is not the story and and currently it's it's incumbent on damien collins as current president to well, be telling that story damien does such a good job i do not know how such a busy man I thought I was good, you know. I think I did a lot of media. Damien is incredible. He's there 24-7, front on for Rewa, a hip and shoulder. He's really good at it. He takes it right up to the government. He doesn't mince his words. He's very concise with what he says. When he talks about the market, it's not just bulldust. He's saying, oh, just because he's a real estate agent, he's talking about the market. I think the stuff he says is quite correct. We're in an entirely different market in Western Australia to New South Wales, Victoria. Sadly, we're only 10% of the Commonwealth. Though. So they like to talk about the three big states, uh, Queensland, New South Wales, and Victoria as representing 60 70% of Australia's property market. Well, and therefore they say it represents yeah. the whole country. Now, property prices are falling in those states because they've had a big boom for a long while. We didn't have a boom until about 18 months ago, and we're now playing catch-up. Well, we've only just really, depending on yeah. who you ask, got back to where it was seven years ago. And, and you've got to peel it apart a bit, Trent. I've got a belief that the reason that the lower-priced properties have jumped so much is that the state government have artificially produced this... Look, I'm sorry, I don't agree with it at all. This, Especially what they did in COVID was so generous that everybody rushed out to build a house and no, nobody can get into their house because it's not built. Mm. So they're now paying double rent 
or having to rent for a lot longer than they were. We've created an artificial boom which neatly goes up to the stamp duty threshold of four or 430000 Then it filters off because you've got to pay duty again after four thirty. And So as a result, we've got an artificial boom at the bottom of the market, which is the worst place you want to have a boom at because they're the poorest. And the most vulnerable. And the most vulnerable and the people who'll find it most hard as interest rates rise. And I know that, you know, with rates rising now, up virtually 1% in the last month or so, slap on the wrist of the Reserve Bank. You didn't see this coming? Where were you guys? Mm. The most highly paid people in Australia and aboard of the world's best brains. Wow, you didn't realise that we're going to face some crisis later? Seriously. Anyway, getting back to my first home buyers, my little bugbear, these artificial grants that governments give, you know, nothing wrong with the stamp duty concession because stamp duty is too high. But artificial grants for building has really backfired, I believe, on the market and on the government. And a lot of people have been, young people have been sucked in to build a home and now find it can't be built at the price. Damien's been pushing for an increase in the stamp duty threshold from 430 to $530,000. To the median price, yeah. Uh, when we... Essentially, yeah, or to just below the median price. To push We've been arguing that for years, Trent. That's right, and, and I don't understand why McGowan hasn't made that move yet. But to an extension of that, you look at what's just being pushed through in New South Wales is, is an alternative there where there's a, mm. an annual subscription-based land tax, essentially. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? I don't know enough about it, and I want to talk to Damien about it. It's interesting in New South Wales want to do that. Uh, they've got a bigger, obviously, much bigger market in a broader market, but it's very valiant of them, I think, to come up with that idea. But I don't know that a lot of people, I, I just can't see that West Australians or Australians generally are ready to accept a uh, what will be called a fe- essentially a broad-based land tax. Most of us would be reluctant to give a government any further opportunity to tax us because the lie, Trent, and we want to get this on tape, in 2000, when GST was introduced, you were a boy, I imagine, the great promise was if we introduce GST as a goods and services tax, state governments will be able to get rid of local taxes like stamp duty. Like payroll tax? Payroll tax, stamp duty. Oh, yes, said the state governments, and willfully lied. They never did a thing about it. Mm. They just turned their back on it. No state government has. And in fact, the worst one was that the Richard Court state government in 2003, a Liberal government, increased stamp duty. And stamp duty, of course, is just the worst possible tax because it goes up at the rate of properties going It's up. an inefficient and punitive tax in that it doesn't actually create anything. What it does is it, cre- all it, does is, well, it creates fr- friction in a yeah. market. So if you took the tax away, the argument is that it provides for more opportunity for downsizing, more transactions, therefore more work across mortgage broking, sales, law, yeah. settlements, all of these uh, other jobs where the revenue based on GST alone should probably uh, well, make a big difference to subsidising the loss the government would have on the stamp duty tax. So, uh, But it, it is, it's a, it's a massive, massive hit that in the short term, the government probably too scared to make a move on. Well, well uh, this, is, this Labor government have been very good at doing a lot of stuff in the property market and generally in the economy. I think Ben Wyatt was a sensational treasurer and I think uh, full credit to Mark McGowan's government the way they've managed the uh, state economy but they're banking billions of dollars which mm. don't seem to be spent on anything other than the argument in keeping stamp duties oh you only pay it once or twice because you're only going to buy it so once or twice but it's a heavy blunt instrument to hit people with that once or twice would it be better spread over many years I personally think so 
Would there have to be exemptions? The trouble is it's going to take a lot of committees a lot of years to come up with the perfect method. The current land tax system, which is applies to to every property except your own principal place of residence, is a pretty heavy tax. Yeah, I mean, my tax bill is, is sizable. Every time you get it, you, you know, It's Jesus punitive. Yeah. Labor governments wave it away and say, oh, well, you see, only the rich pay land tax. Liberal governments... Um, complain about it but never do anything about it well like stamp duty was introduced in england in the 1860s to for the government to earn some revenue on um, on documents because people kept coming in to have documents stamped with an official stamp so the government they thought what's the good we'll have a for putting this stamp on your document it's going to be two and six well there you go that's why it's called stamp duty <laughs> and then well this is a good tax yeah. we can keep this going let's look forward or let's at least uh, try and create some connections between the current story in Western Australia and uh, I guess some analogous examples you'd have over the last 50 years. We're in a situation now where obviously interest rates are rising and obviously they're coming off the lowest base ever, but they are starting to make home ownership less affordable, although not unaffordable in any, any stretch of the imagination. We have consistently the same transaction numbers on a weekly basis, which represents demand at about 900 to 1,000 mm. properties a week, which is, well, I must note, about 20% higher than what it was in the boom on average yep. uh, and double what it was three and a half years ago. Mm. We have a supply number that is half of what it was three mm-hmm. years ago at just over 8,000 properties. 14,000, 15,000 properties a week was, when I was it president. Was, it was, yeah, and it got to 17 and a half in mm. March 2019. And we have a vacancy rate that's never been so low ever. Yeah, there's a lot of unusual factors there, isn't there, Trent? Have you ever uh, seen any of these? No, not all happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, supply for uh, properties for listings is unusually low. And in the rental market, well, the rental market you can see, and this could easily be predicted. We've lost, I think, in WA around 15,000 properties out of the rental market because they've been sold. The owners have come home to live in them due to COVID or other reasons from other states. Or, and the government's got out of the housing market to a large extent. But private investors have been uh, discouraged from investing in housing because of concerns with tenants, bad press over bad tenants, and not all tenants are bad. And this 99% is, of tenants are really good. This is at the same time uh, the advent of Airbnb. Uh, well. We've all rented. We're all going to have to rent once between properties. And uh, uh, Airbnb has taken a lot of properties out of the market. I predicted that years ago. I think it's a bad thing that are bad, certainly bad for real estate agents. And there's another case of protecting our patch. Most agents are not interested in short-term rentals, but we probably do a better job because at least you've got a manager, property manager overlooking it, and they take a huge chunk. I mean, it's 20% they take out of the so-called rent you're getting. I've done a lot of exercises looking at returns from people who are getting a, who've Airbnb'd their properties, who've brought them back to us as a permanent rental. Because the difference and the frustration in owning the Airbnb property wasn't worth the additional return. I digress. The property rental market is something that is not going to improve in the short term unless we get investors back in the market. Now, investors should be in the market because until recently, uh, with interest rates so low and uh, rents so high, you could get easily four or five, in some cases, better percentage yield Far better than a bank interest rate. Yeah, positively geared property was the expectation. Yeah. Now, currently, I'm getting some money on deposit, I think, in the bank, 1.5%, maybe 2 But I'm getting for a rental property I own the equivalent of, on its cost, about 10%, but on its current value, about 
So why wouldn't I want to own rental property? There's no risk of it falling in value. There's ready demand there and always will be. If I spent some money on it and modernised it, it'd be worth more rent. There's a lot out there, but we haven't got a market currently. We actually don't have a population that are thinking like investors. All the investors that I knew back in the 70s, 80s and 90s, we had them coming into the office all the time. Mm. They were young, ambitious young people like yourself. They were older people, already owned one or two. They wanted another one. A lot of people were really comfortable with owning residential rental property. Not anymore. The investment advisors say, oh, no, you need to sell your properties and we'll put it into funds and do this and you look at a pile of cash. Well, we've scared investors off and I don't know what the answer is to get them back into the market. And that is, I guess, the crux of the issue in that when you don't have as many investors in the market and the red tape of planning in infill suburbs that would allow for Mm. further supply of investment properties that aren't taking away from owner-occupied properties is also uh, quite stymied. When you don't have that situation, it creates a critical undersupply of rentals. And Mm. when you can't rent, you must buy. But if you can't buy either because there aren't any properties that you like, we had Colleen Gandini in here last week, top agent in Applecross, and she said, Trent, the market's doing extremely well. However, if there was any thing that was holding it back it's simply the lack of supply of properties people yeah. want to buy the buyers are there but if i only have x amount of properties available and my buyers don't want any of those ones they're not going to pay four million dollars for that property well, it's well, interesting how you, know, you think about a market that's soft it's the other way it's that i have too many properties not yeah. enough buyers oh so look everything we sell locally and I, as i said i'm in the western suburbs which like anywhere else has been booming there's probably two or three offers on the table we don't know what price to put on properties anymore we tend to put them on as offers. And this brings me back to what's the market doing. I think um, the market will probably take a bit of a breather as these these huge, this blunt instrument that the Reserve Bank are using to bash rates up at a half a percent a month will probably continue for a little while longer. They've said they want to get rates back to around uh, 4 to 5%. A lot of people will hate hearing that, but that's probably... You got to remember that's still fairly low rate, mm. but the Reserve Bank have underestimated the, um, the the massive changes in the economy. They've concentrated their views way too much on the eastern states market. We've always argued, and I can remember this argument years ago. Trent, we reckon we should have a different cash rate in Western we should, Australia. We get tarred with <laughs> the same brush as the rest of the country, and unfortunately, whether it's out of uh, coincidence or our own economic factors that are just not in any way connected to the east coast we generally run an inverse uh, cycle oh, to the east coast right and and it's, i don't think it's out of design it's just happened that way yeah and unfortunately when we probably need interest rates to rise we don't get it and they stay low and our market mm. overheats and when we don't re- when we need some help on interest rates and get them to drop they don't drop. So we, we have much bigger swings. They call us a boom and bust city because we have a mining background, but I actually don't believe that that is the, the real reason yeah. for the massive swings in our median house price. Well, Trent, it's now the middle of 2022. It's uh, seven years since I left the presidency in 2015. When I left, the median price in Perth was 530000 it's now 553, so it's actually increased, but it's been down to 400 mm. whilst I wasn't president. Poor old Hayden Groves went through a terrible market, and as has Damien. Damien's talked it up, and I think he's to be congratulated. But the reality is, if you look at the longer term picture, prices are higher, but in many cases, if you look really cl- back at prices, they're only recovering to what they were in that massive boom we had 10, 11, and 12. 
I've just sold a little apartment the other day in Claremont for 520000 that I sold to the same owner seven years ago for 520000 if I can bring you back even further, I'm sure when you were saying that property in Willerton for $13,000, at no point in time did you ever believe it probably has been sold in the last couple of years for $900,000. At no point, I guess, no. back 50 years ago, did you ever consider that was remotely no. an opportunity? Uh, well, you just can't imagine an trend to a house in Dalkeith, median price in Dalkeith, $2.5 million. I used to own a house in Dalkeith that I sold years ago for about 300000 I couldn't believe that. Well, that was absolutely unbelievable amount of money. But then I can take it even further and go that property in Dalkeith. If you bring it to Sydney and it's somewhere in Vaucluse, for example, it's probably yeah. seven million. Well, the dearest suburb in per, per square meter is Cottesloe. We sold a property in Cottesloe the other day on six hundred and seventy-five square meters with ocean. I can't call them views; they're real estate agent views, but they're really glimpses. <laughs> and that was around about seven thousand bucks, seven sevens. Nearly $7,000 a square metre for this property. Now, in Dalkeith, you can buy a quarter acre block for $2.5 million. Now, a quarter acre, folks, is 1,012 square metres. That's two and a half grand a metre. Where would you rather live? Hmm, well, I like Cottesloe, but not for seven grand a metre. Mm. I'd rather have a quarter acre in Dalkeith. In fact, I'd rather have the two together for $5 million. Yeah. Have a really big garden, a veggie garden and fruit trees. Like my home among the gum trees with lots of plum trees. Yeah, exactly But right. no, at Cottesloe where you'll get windswept and lots of salt and your car will rust, people want to live there and they're paying incredible prices. That would still be prices that no one would batter an eyelid though in Sydney. Correct. Cottesloe's got its own economic set of values though now. We reckon the money's coming out of mining and uh, extreme fortunes that have been made. But mining's taken a hit. Shares have taken a big hit, 50% hit in the spec market in the last few months. I think there'll be some adjustments in people's thinking, uh, which will filter into the real estate market. We're probably heading for uh, um, a bit of a plateau, maybe, and I think whatever happens, very much a soft landing. There won't be massive falls. Uh, there'll probably be some big stabilisation at the top end of the market. But I think the median, anywhere around the median price, let, let's say up to a mill, is going to thrive in West Australia because we've got the lifestyle, the employment opportunities, wages in WA for people in, in a lot of jobs are considerably higher than elsewhere. In fact, I think the median for West Australia is like 130 grand well, a year. We're, we're, by statistics, we are the highest paid, outside of Canberra, we're yeah. the highest paid state. And that's where the irony is that we can be the highest paid state paying the same interest rates, having a tight market and still having a median house price uh, just above a third of that of Sydney. It, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't pale well with me in terms of all of those uh, other statistics, all things being equal. And you, you mentioned that median house price to a million dollar point. Well, it's an interesting stat that Rewig just brought out a couple of days ago that the top 10 performers in terms of growth in the last 12 months, most of those are actually between $800,000 yeah. and a million bucks. But Trent, I did a radio program on 6PR on that very subject and I had to remind the audience that many of those suburbs were over a million dollars five, ten years ago, but they've now come back again. Mm-hmm. To go. They've gone down and come back. Mount Hawthorne was one. History repeats itself in the property market and it's hit lot. real estate is a long-term investment. If you're going to look at it every five minutes, or even every year, you're not going to. You're going to be worried a lot about it. You should it. be in the share market. You precisely go to the share market. Buying real estate should be bought on the fundamental value. You need land. Buying a house and land, a little even a 500 square meter block, 
The value is always in the land. The, the house itself is a depreciating asset. Apartments appreciate at a much lower rate than houses. Uh, a lot of apartments, as we know, throughout the inner city are probably not worth any more than what they were sold for mm. 10 years ago. But many people want to live in apartments because it suits them and they're perceived to be cheaper. To get a house, you've got to go to the outer suburbs. You need to catch the bus and the train and take a hot you know, water bag and so on. Housing value is always in the land, and that's what I learned fundamentally many years ago. Where you can buy a good value land in a good suburb, that's what you should be looking at. And I think if people can afford to do so, they will be better off on a small subdivided block somewhere than perhaps young couples going into an apartment. But it's nice to start off with a little apartment maybe as a young person investing in. Imagine a situation, a few of my kids have done this, where they bought a a little unit or flat and then they lived in that for a while and then uh, were able to keep that as an investment and move on to something else. Uh, real estate wealth is built on um, ongoing investment and having, it's like you just talk about the share market trend, you only make a loss if you sell yeah. and you don't pay capital gains tax if you don't sell. You're just going to accumulate the asset. Real estate investment over the long term, whether it's for rental return or somewhere to live, you've got to live somewhere. I reckon the best investment anyone will ever make in their life will always be the home they live in. The family home. Well, on a tax basis, it is. Think about someone who absolutely reached for the stars for their family home. uh, That will be the most effective on a tax basis investment they ever make in their life. And we've got to make sure that no government is ever allowed to tax the family home. Mm. And my concern with a broad-based land tax would be uh, give them an inch, they'll take a mile. That'll be the thin end of the wedge because the broad-based land tax will be applied to the family home. There'll be the exempt and the non-exempt and it'll be like capital gains tax. Uh, The famous statement by the government was, we'll get them in the end because it had to be bought before 1985. Yeah. Let's look at the next couple of years if we can. Mm. Uh, Interest rates will most likely... The cash rate will most likely rise to, I'd say, in my opinion, yeah. 2.5%, 2 to 2.5%, which means yep. interest rates, I think, will be somewhere in the fours for owner-occupiers and investors will probably converge to somewhere in that space too. The premium won't be that much higher than it has been recently. The supply Rents. of property will mm. continue to stay extremely low as mm. builders have not been building anything in the inner mm. 20 kilometers of the city. Yes, they've had a massive boom out in mm. Baldivis and Byford, but none of it's really been in the inner 20 kilometers and planning gets harder and harder anyway. The rental market will continue to stay tight as uh, immigration pushes through and people obviously rent first. They like to at least before they pick their mm. home. And transaction numbers will continue to stay relatively high or at least a lot higher than the long-range average as we have uh, finally people immigrating into this country, yeah. trickling in as as, uh, as they've been attempting to get through all their well, visa well, applications. Well, Im- immigration will drive prices and rental prices up. Well, that's normally what the number one fa- yeah. that foundation of price growth is. It's, it's demand, which comes from yeah. population growth. Well, we need that uh, growth, that's for sure, in uh, employment for immig- immigration to feed into employment. But the consequential effect will be rents and prices. I just wanted to finish off one thing I omitted to say in relation to buying an investment property. Go to rewa.com and look at the suburb profiles for uh, each suburb. That Look at the number of rentals. You want to buy investment property in areas that have high demand for rentals. That way you're going to have very low vacancy rates. As for the market, the predictions, all of those things that you said, Trent, I think are absolutely correct. They're going to be... 
it's going to be an interesting market, very hard to predict. But again, in the great scheme of things, if we look at it over, if we look at it micro, it'll be a tough couple of years. But if we look at it macro over the long term, maybe over 10, 20 longer term period, it'll just be a little blip on the radar. And things do iron themselves out. There's no question that when I look back at those 16% interest rates in 1990, the longer you stretch the graph out, the more that the blip reduces. <laughs> <laughs> Your mountains become molehills over the longer term. It's a case of surviving it. Most of us are given 50 years on earth to work in and to build out, to get married, have kids, make money, run a business, have Put a good job. Tech. Build it and then the rest, theoretically, we're looking down maybe because we're living for a lot longer now. We're looking at opportunities to do other work or maybe put something back into society, manage our investments more productively. None of us want to live forever worrying about money. Preserving capital is the most vitally important thing that I've learned to do in the market and particularly recently when we see the damage done in stock markets to manage your capital so that losses are minimised and it's in a safe place. And that's a consequence of age too. Younger people can afford to take a risk and you need to take a risk. Uh, Fortune favours the brave, as you would know, Trent, with what you're doing. But not everybody wants to do that. Invest to your risk level and get good advice. Go to people that have done it. What you read in the newspapers, and we talked about this off air, media, I, I, I get, my blood boils are some of the crap I read in the media by so-called experts. Same here. I'd love to know what they own, these guys. I mean, there was that university professor in Sydney that sold all his real estate years ago because he said the world's going to end. And Seriously, and he's still got a job somewhere. Or <laughs> well, you've got you know, Gareth Aird, head of uh, CBA Economics, yeah. brushing, tiring us with the same brush as the East Coast. I find it lazy. You've got Christopher Joy continually talking mm. about the national house price but only ever referencing Melbourne or Sydney. And uh, I find that lazy as well. But we read these things. There's just another view. And we've got to look at the broader view. And your podcast listeners are obviously sophisticated people who want a broader view. At the end of the day, not all of us have got a lot of spare money. We need a bigger deposits on property. Half the borrowing issues that people face are faced because they start off with too small a deposit. Mm. Parents out there, I think you've got to lend money to your kids. I've done that, so I want everybody else to, to help them with the deposit so they don't pay that punitive mortgage insurance have a good deposit, a 20% deposit, and invest in real estate and take a not long-term view. I, I can't imagine that anyone would be sorry later unless they've you know, got the wrong advice or bought some crap. Yeah. David Airy, legend of the industry. I really <laughs> appreciate having you in, mate. It's, it's one where I think some of us sometimes just need to step back and, as you said, mountains become molehills over time. Yeah. And when someone like yourself has got the gift of time behind him now and that being able to climb a number of mountains that look <laughs> like molehills uh, at, at a distance, yeah. uh, it starts to put all the noise we're hearing in the market into perspective. Well, I'd like to think, Trent, I've, ha I've, I've added something today, if nothing else, to... If your listeners uh, maybe help them a little bit in some way because, yes, you've got to have, as I've faced a few challenges in my life and uh, lots of different markets, you take something away from each of those. But, you know, in the great scheme of things, uh, that's the, the, the everyone draws uh, draws uh, different cards in life and uh, you've got to make the most of the hand that you dealt. There's great opportunity out there. This is a great place and I think I'm uh, really, really, really very privileged to have enjoyed such a great career in a business in an industry that I, I just love 
and I hope to give up in some form of retirement eventually. <laughs> well, if you can indulge me, what does that look like over the next few years? Well, Dave? look, Will I, I see you out at a home I, opening? I'm going on holiday time? shortly, and I am coming back, and I, I promise you I'm not doing any more home opens, Trent, but I might still act occasionally for the odd person and, and the, the clients who come back and see me, but I've got plenty of family, and all the family are in the real estate business, so... It's not as if I haven't got successes. That'll keep you in touch, I'm sure. I hope so. David, thank you very much. Thanks, Trent. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!